This is The Politics of Everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast, so while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. My interviewee for episode 16 is Belinda Neal. She's a former police detective, homicide investigator and hostage negotiator who is now a strong advocate for raising awareness about post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, which has personally affected her life. After her own journey, including including being medically retired from the New South Wales Police in 2005, she went on to write a best-selling book, Under Siege, and today is Director of PTSD Australia New Zealand, which operates Fearless. They're a registered not-for-profit aimed to help those with PTSD regain control over their lives. Having worked with Belinda, I admire her determination and bravery, and we're so fortunate to have her here today to discuss the very gritty topic of the politics of PTSD. Thank you for joining us, Belinda. Thank you for having me on the show, Amber. So you joined the New South Wales Police Force in 1987 at the age of 19. What originally attracted you to this type of career? Well, I was always interested in helping people, and I looked at the options of medicine, although I didn't quite get the marks at school for that. I was interested in becoming either a paramedic or joining the police force. The police won out as I loved that it had numerous different areas that I could go into, whether that be forensics or investigations, and it wasn't your typical nine-to-five job. And it was such, it was challenging. It was exciting. And were there many 19-year-old girls in New South Wales police back in those days? Well, at that stage, our class, which was class 225, had the most amount of girls ever. The police force had to have a quota, make up a quota of 25% females. And I think we just made that 25%. Okay. So definitely working mostly with men, I guess, in the, in the police in those days. And how were police officers in, say, the 1980s into the 1990s and so forth mentally trained to deal with what would be some very traumatic incidents they would be attending, I imagine, on a daily basis? like investing illicit drug operations, organised crime or even homicide, how did they actually prepare you to deal with that? Well, there was very limited to no mental health training. There was operational training, for example, there was a detective's course, there was homicide investigator's course, undercover course, but limited or no mental health training. Recently, some documents were obtained through Freedom of Information in respect to mental health training for, for the new recruits at the police academy, and in particular post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. There was only one PowerPoint slide with one bullet point referencing PTSD, and that was it. So apart from this, the term PTSD wasn't even used in the 1980s or the 1990s. Debriefings for traumatic incidents were held at the local pub, and alcohol became a form of self-medication. And police officers who took sick leave for stress were actually considered weak. Wow, that's that's crazy stuff if you think about, you know, obviously the, st- the matters that you're dealing with and the personal impact to go back to your everyday life. Um, I have no idea how how they could sort of, you know, get through in many ways. So with post-traumatic stress disorder, it's a mental health condition, but I guess a lot of us still associate it with war zones or, you know, those kinds of environments in the defence. And I, as you mentioned, it was hardly even talked about sort of 20, 30 years ago. 
society is now accepting there is long-term impacts to the brain from PTSD. Why do you think there's been such a shift in awareness about what the impacts are and, you know, the fact it's a serious matter? Um, yeah, look, I think society generally is more accepting these days and I think we, we've got that access to the internet and the knowledge base that we can we can Google and we can look up things there. We're also a very social media savvy society and there's been a lot of coverage in the media of people affected by PTSD. Initially, I think the media coverage started with our defence forces, in particular with the emotional impact of those coming back from, say, Iraq and Afghanistan, and then with police, officers like Esther Mackay, who wrote one of the first books about her journey and the impact of policing on her and PTSD, myself and others who've written about our journeys to raise awareness. And now you've got the media highlighting many other PTSD stories of first responders, police, fireys, ambulance officers who are all struggling to get compensation through insurance companies for their psychological injuries. The media have actually been very helpful in educating the public. There are many support groups also for PTSD on social media, including Facebook groups. I think we're slowly educating society that PTSD is a real condition and that just because a person with PTSD doesn't have their head bandaged doesn't make it any less an injury than a physical one. And this injury impacts not just the sufferers, but their families and loved ones. Of course, and I think the whole of society, you know, we have a role to play to support people with any sort of a mental health condition, and this is obviously one that you're, you've had personal experience with. How did you actually get diagnosed with PTSD? How do you actually know that you have it? Okay, a mental health professional, a psychologist or a psychiatrist will be able to diagnose you with PTSD. I never realised I had PTSD and sometimes the best people to identify there is a problem are your family, your close friends or workmates who actually notice changes in your behaviour. So listen to them. There's a number of symptoms that I had. I had intrusive thoughts about my children being killed or stabbed, murdered in their beds, nightmares, flashbacks of jobs that I'd been to. I was having sleeping difficulties. I was becoming very irritable and easily startled. If there was a bang, I'd be diving for the floor. I was avoiding places. I didn't want to take my children to the park because I was worried there would be kidnappers. And I was too, it was exhausting trying to think of, trying to keep an eye on them. Absolutely. No, that's incredible. I mean, I can imagine that would be the impact. It's almost like in some ways the old-fashioned view is you can draw a line in the sand between, you know, your job and your personal life, but that's clearly not the case. No, it um, it's invasive and that, that that is the insidious nature of PTSD. You just, it's very, very difficult to turn it off. You become... Absolutely. So thinking about your career in the force and obviously you, you reached a very high level and we're dealing with some high stress situations such as being a hostage negotiator. I always see those movies and think how do those people do it and you did it for real. What sort of specialist communication skills did that teach you? Yes, the number one skill of a hostage negotiator is the ability to listen or our active listening skills. And basically that's just about showing someone that you're listening to them and trying to get them to and trying to understand their own message. This has become particularly useful with my now teenage children. Oh, I bet. Oh, very, very helpful. But they're now negotiating back at me, which is very interesting. Oh, that's funny, negotiating with a professional negotiator. So I guess, you know, thinking about your own journey, what types of professional therapy and treatments have you undergone over the years to get you to where you are today, where you can have a career and you can, I guess, get through the day-to-day at a somewhat normal level? Well, where, what basically got me here today 
some of the therapies I used were psychotherapy, including exposure therapy, and that was with my psychiatrist, and that was talking about some of the incidents that I went through with him. I also needed to take antidepressant medication because I did have suicidal tendencies. At one stage, I was in a very, very dark place. But what I found with that was that when you take the antidepressant medication, whilst it's effective in numbing the raw emotion, it also stops you experiencing the good emotions. So I, I, I couldn't feel joy when I got a hug from one of my children. So I had the opportunity to take part in a study of putative cerebellum exercises and quite simply for three weeks, I did the exercise I did was to stand on one leg with my eyes closed for five minutes twice a day. After three weeks, I was weaned off the antidepressant medication I'd been taking for 18 months and I was starting to feel happy. So they were the three main things that got me here. And now That's I still- amazing. Wow, I've never heard of that. Ther- Is there a name for that type of therapy, that the last one you mentioned where you stand on your on your leg? Quite simply, putative cerebellum exercises. Okay, I do. fantastic. I wonder what it does. Do you have an understanding of how that actually works and what, how that can get you through to, the, I guess, to come off the medication? Is there any kind of theory behind that? Look, they're not sure at this stage. We believe it's the cerebellum because of a lot of studies that have been done. And I've actually put my study, because I did a further study of this, and that's on my website. You can have a look at the, the PTSD link and, and go on and click onto that if you want to know more in relation to that. But they're not sure whether it's creating neural pathways or activating something in the cerebellum. But numerous studies, we hope that there will be more studies focusing on this because it's free. It's a small amount of time, five minutes twice a day, and it's there's been some amazing results with the studies. Absolutely, and much far better, I guess, long-term than being on medication forever, as you said. So with your book, Under Siege, you wrote that a few years ago. What made you decide to write this book? And I guess, did it rehash any of the PTSD for you because you had to write about these these incidents which actually triggered obviously your condition? Mm. I wrote under siege as I had a number of years of therapy and I still saw a lot of really good police succumbing to PTSD, some committing suicide. So I wanted to let them know that there was hope and they could manage their condition and also that early intervention could prevent and minimise PTSD symptoms. In terms of whether it rehashed the PTSD for me, wow, it was very, very difficult. And writing, I know, can be cathartic for some people, but it wasn't for me. Putting myself back in those situations again to try and describe them for the reader, the sights, the smells, the sounds, what was happening really set me back in my recovery. And how long did it actually take you to complete that writing project? Oh, it took me five years. I'm aware some writers can take six weeks, but it took me five years, and that's because at one stage I couldn't look at the book for 12 months because I knew I had someone editing it. I knew I had to come back and go through all those situations, and for 12 months I couldn't even look at the book. That's incredible. And it's obviously gone on to, to do very well. Why, why do you think it had such a, you know, it's become a bestseller and I'm not sure how many copies you've sold now, but I, I know a bestseller is over 5,000. So why do you think people are attracted to read this particular story or this type of story? Yeah. Look, I am excited because there's been over 12,000 copies sold. There so I'm very well excited. But what it tells me is that people have a thirst for knowledge. Now, my career was very different. So I told a lot of, lot of my homicide stories and my negotiation, you know, high-risk negotiation stories but it was getting a message out about post-traumatic stress disorder. And I know from the feedback that I'm getting the people who are really learning from it are not just those with post-traumatic stress disorders, but the families, the friends and the workmates because they're getting information 
and an understanding of what their loved one is going through. I've even had widows contact me and let me know it actually gave them a sense of understanding of what might have been going through their mind of their loved one before they committed suicide. And that touches me very deeply. Of course, and I guess that impact on raising awareness is, is, I guess, always a good thing, particularly for a topic which in some ways has been quite taboo or no one really wanted to, to know about it. So in terms of um, you talk about not just for you as individuals who, or people who might be suffering from PTSD, also the families and the friends that are impacted, how, how can we best support you know, them as well? Because I guess it's a whole, it's not just obviously that person, it's everyone around them that's affected. From your experience, what's the best way that they can get help as well? Uh, look, we need to, we need to educate society because society can, it, it's not just as you said about the sufferers. We need to look after those who are looking after the sufferers. And that is by gathering knowledge, educating ourselves, show compassion to those with PTSD and support those who care for them. Don't be afraid to ask someone if they're okay. Listen to them and don't be judgmental. Show people that you care. It's the people that did this to me during my darkest times that I remember the most. And for those people especially who are looking after the families and friends, they also need to look after themselves. I think one of the best examples I've ever seen is when you're on an aeroplane and you're being taken through the initial procedures and they tell you when you drop the air down, put it on yourself before you put it on your child. It's the same thing in terms of looking after someone with a mental health. You need to look after yourself first before you can care for somebody else. Exactly. It's all it's that idea of self-care, which I think we're also coming to terms with now, but perhaps 10, 20 years ago, no one had even thought about that. If you are in a caring position and you are the support network for someone with PTSD, and I guess for you, how do you actually manage your symptoms today? You've obviously, you've now taken on a new role as Director of PTSD Australia New Zealand with Fearless under your belt. How do you actually do that? And obviously you do speaking gigs and a whole bunch of other things. How do you balance that with, I guess, what will be a long-term condition for you to manage? Look, you're exactly, exactly right. I think the beauty of today is that PTSD no longer controls me because I've learned to manage my condition. So... If I have some work coming up, if I have some speaker engagements or some work with Fearless, I, I need to really look at that and manage myself. So this is what I do. I talk to someone when, when I need to, and this could just be downloading to my partner. It could be talking to my teenagers. And one thing I've got to say about kids, they're more perceptive than we give them credit for. So give them information. If I am feeling low, I will contact my mental health professional if I need to go and talk to them. I use physical exercise. There's so much research that shows us this is good for our mental health. And for me personally, I like to walk, I do yoga, and I surf. I- yes, I've seen those um, those surfing images of you on social media. So how did you get into surfing? How did, how did you find that as a bit of an outlet for you? Oh, look, I've always loved the beach and the water. When I got into, I got into surfing because of my nephews. They both surf and my sister was starting to learn to surf, so I tried to give it a go. And I loved it. And what I find is being out on the water, it's very mindful. And that's another one of my strategies too, mindful meditation. I'll talk about that in a minute. But it's very mindful. Just being out on the water, it's very relaxing. But then surfing a wave, that concentration, that focus, that mindfulness up on the wave, and then that's that wonderful feeling of achievement 
catching a wave. So that's why I've continued my surfing. And I'm actually doing more research on surfing for PTSD too because I would like to get a lot of others involved in that. That's interesting. I, I guess I was curious because I was wondering whether it was actually formally suggested to you as a as a therapy, a physical therapy to help you, but it sounds like it sort of came to you and from that you can now perhaps, you know, inspire others to take on a similar activity. You yeah. mentioned mindfulness. What role has that played in your recovery? Oh, look, mindfulness meditation is an amazing way to help clear your head. Just wonderful. When I first um, saw my psychiatrist, even though he didn't call it mindful meditation, one of the things he said to me was, go home and I want you to sit quietly for 10 minutes. Well, after what seemed like an eon, I checked my watch and it had been one minute. And that just goes to show just how the mind works and how distracted we can get. So I've researched a lot of different apps and the app I most like is um, Headspace's app. And it's really just sitting quietly focusing on the body and the breathing. Now, what I would love to do is challenge the listeners because the Headspace app has 10 minutes a day program and the first 10 sessions are free. What I would challenge the listener to do is to try this for one week for 10 minutes a day and see if they notice a change in themselves. They are welcome to email me and tell me what they think. Yeah, that would be great. So there's, there's a challenge for you, everybody. I definitely have tried it myself. And like you, Belinda, the first time was like, is this ever going to end? And then you almost look forward to it that, to get into the habit. That is exactly right. And when you get to that stage, Amber, that, that is wonderful. It's about retraining the brain. That's what we're trying to do. And if we can't spare sort of, you know, 10 minutes a day, then there's obviously something wrong with our schedule. So it sounds very manageable as well. Exactly. So. So what are you up to these days? Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing at the moment with obviously the directorship role. How how did that come to you and what, what do you hope to achieve? Yes. So I was approached by Chris Barry, who's the chairman of an organisation called PTSD Australia New Zealand, and they run this organisation, Fearless, fearless.org.au. He asked me if I would come on board as a director And what I liked is everybody involved, firstly, the board of directors, they're all very passionate about PTSD. They have either the lived experience, they have a family member who are involved, or Chris Barry, who's one of our ex-chief of defence force. They all have some insight into PTSD and extremely passionate. And the patron is Mari Bashir, who, you know, our former governor, who is just wonderful. A very high-five profile team for you to join. Absolutely. So what the goal is, we're trying to create a coordinated network of outreach and support services and it's to help those who live with PTSD in their families so they can regain control of their lives. Something obviously very close to my heart. We've got researchers at a number of universities and we're looking to develop a management protocol for PTSD. We're looking hopefully next year to have a national conversation and that's basically bringing together many disparate groups of experts to share knowledge so we can improve the way we deal with all aspects of managing PTSD in the community. So it's really, really exciting, a bunch of very, very passionate people, and it's very close to my heart. So I was absolutely honoured to be invited to take a role on the board. Absolutely. And it sounds like they've got, you know, obviously a big job, but a meaningful job ahead of them as a team and for you as an individual. I'm a big believer that, you know, we never get to where we are without some inspirational figures or mentors in our lives. Are there any that come to mind for you and what have they taught you throughout life and perhaps your career as well? 
in all honesty, where I draw my inspiration from are the men and women in our emergency services that expose themselves to trauma, put their lives and their mental health on the line every single day so that we can sleep soundly at night. It's a big price to pay by the sounds of it too for that for them. The statistics are quite appalling. I don't know if you've got those to hand about how many people, you know, perhaps end up with PTSD or even commit suicide in, in those particular professions. Uh, in terms of committing suicide, in terms of the emergency services, the yes, figures that came out last year were one every six weeks committed suicide for, because of due to PTSD. And to me, that is horrendous. Absolutely. That is horrific. Horrific Absolutely. figures. The figures in terms of the emergency services for PTSD is about one in 10, 80,000. There's 80,000 emergency services. So this, this is. We the- need to be doing better. We need to be supporting them, of course. I mean, just, you know, if we want to have, we need these services. They're pretty much the essential elements of any modern society. So there's definitely a big role to be played to support people in the emergency services and I guess the defense and the police force as well, where you've spent your career. Just to wrap up, as a society, if we're going to do better to support those who have been impacted by post-traumatic stress disorder, what are some sort of tools and techniques and ideas really that we can we can implement to help? Yeah, th- this is a great suggestion because society can do so much. At the moment, they're educating themselves via the internet, via all the different social media. So show compassion. Show compassion to those with PTSD and support them. Don't be afraid to ask people if they're okay. Listen. Don't be judgmental and show people that you care. Ask someone if they're okay. This is some of the best things that society can do to help those with PTSD. And if if you are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder or want some more information, where can people go, Belinda, to contact perhaps your organisation or some other support services that might be in Australia? Oh, look, absolutely. Our website has a number of links and contacts and information about post-traumatic stress. They can go go to your GP, get a mental health professional, a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Start with these, but at the very basic, speak to somebody, speak to somebody you care about and somebody who will support you and talk to them. I think for someone suffering PTSD, one of the biggest issues that I've seen is they do tend to become quite introverted. And it is the best person who is going to support you is those closest to you. So let them in give them a little bit of information. But yes, there are a number of support services out there, Lifeline, Beyond Blue, Sane Australia, our organisation, Fearless. Absolutely. Well, it's been absolutely, you know, mind-boggling to chat to you in many ways and I think it's a really important issue. We've shone a spotlight on today on the politics of everything. If you are interested to contact Belinda or her organisation, Fearless, there will be some details on our show notes. You've been listening to The Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes. Until next time, stay safe. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespokecoms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E, C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.